What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this special episode from the archives. This is a golden oldie full of great evergreen advice for writers. It's a rerun, basically. Whilst we work on something very, very special. Or oh, very, very special indeed. We were so young and naive, weren't we, Mark? Oh, we were, but our guests, our guests were brimming with wisdom. So enjoy. And we'll be back next week with a brand spanking new episode of The Bestseller Experiment. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we discover what makes a best-selling novel while trying to write, publish and market one in just a year. I'm Mark Stay. And my name's Mark DeVoe. Now, Mark, we have finally got the man in the studio. I'm vibrating with excitement. Uh, we have John York in the studio today. John is the author of Into the Woods. This is the book that basically changed the course of my writing a couple of years ago when it came out. I've got a copy in paperback. I've got a copy on my iPad and on my iPhone. I take it with me wherever I go. So many books talk about uh, when things should happen. You know, this should happen on page 10, that should happen on page 25 on screenwriting. But John's book talks about why, talks about the psychology. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about diving deeper. Well, this book dives very, very deep indeed. John is a drama producer. He's former head of Channel 4 drama in the UK, control, former controller of BBC drama. He's worked on shows like Life on Mars, EastEnders, Holby City, Wolf Hall. He's worked with people like Paul Greengrass, Paul Abbott, Debbie Horsfield, Jimmy McGovern, and he also started the BBC Writers Academy. As you can tell, I'm very excited. <laughs> Welcome to the show, John York, how are you today? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Now, I'm just going to take over, Mark, well, just to calm down a little bit because you're, you're physically shaking there. No, but I think we should tell for people who've not maybe tuning in for the first time in this podcast, John's a bit of, as they say in playgrounds around schools in England, apparently, a bit of a ledge. Because going back, going back to one of our, I think it was our second episode, Mark. Um, well, I should tell you this, John. We had, uh, we had a lady from Hachette talk to us about your book and that's when i first discovered it actually and since then it just keeps coming up i think it's probably the most referenced book in the podcast so um congratulations first on writing such a great book when did you decide to write it oh well to cut a long story short i was teaching writing um i, I created this course at the bbc to teach new writers and i didn't know what i was doing because it had always been an instinctive process to me and so i thought i need to know about this so i read all the classic screenwriting books and the more i read the more i thought there's something not right here there's something missing. And the missing was, as Mark said, was the why. You know, so you would get there has to be an inciting incident on page 23, but no one would ever say why. And to me, you know, I, was, I come from an academic background. And so, you know, you can't, you can't write that. You know, if you submitted that as a university 
thesis, you'd be told to source it. You'd be told to prove it. And none of these books ever proved it. So, so, so it felt to me, oh, this is really interesting. And so I didn't know why. So then, of course, I had to kind of posit loads of theories and try things out. And so you kind of stumble on something that seems like it might be the truth. And really writing that down was my attempt to find out the answer to that question. And how did you get into storytelling yourself? Did this happen at a very young age? My father made amateur films and I was the clapper boy uh, in in his movies uh, at a very young age. So it was always around me and he read a lot. So novels were always around me. But it was really as a teenager, um, this is going to date me now, um, an advert appeared in a British newspaper saying photo love stories story writers wanted uh, <laughs> will pay 50 pounds a story and you know i was a student i thought that, that sounds great to me and so i wrote a photo love story and i sent it to the publishers in scotland and they said this is great can you write another one and so that's how i started Very writing stories and how did you make the leap into television how did you break through there i got a job as a sound engineer in the bbc because it was that thing of you get in any way you can and then just network, just to have a look around, watch everything. So I had this amazing three-year apprenticeship where I used to run from watching sitcoms being made in TV studios to watching the news being broadcast on, on Radio 4 and, and, and just learning all the time and then thinking, I want to do drama. And then it's just a question of knocking on doors till someone finally says, okay, we'll give you a chance. So I did radio drama, first of all, did two or three years of that, and then finally got into EastEnders, which is the big British long-running soap opera here. And within six months of being there, it was, it was kind of, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, I think I know how to do this. I was so scared because it's a huge show. At that time, it was getting 20 million viewers every week. Mm-hmm. So it was really terrifying. But then I suddenly thought, oh, no, actually, this is, this is interesting. I feel comfortable. And then the storyliner left and the, the boss said to me, said like, well, we're a bit stuffed now. Uh, we haven't got anybody. Do you want to write the next month's worth of storylines? And I took a deep breath. I said, <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. It was really scary. I had no idea what I was do- doing at all. I immediately went out and bought 80 cigarettes uh, <laughs> and smoked them all immediately. I, could, I, you know, I don't smoke anymore. I just made that very clear. But... You do it and you just, you know, there was no choice. You have to do it. It's a bit like your thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to do it. That's brilliant. It's so, so often and we've talked to such incredible guests as well. This seems to be coming up right time, right place, but you've got to put yourself in that opportune place of opportunity to begin with. Yeah, that's that's right. And it was brilliant. Yeah, I, I storylined EastEnders single-handed for a year and a half. Um, wow. And... <laughs> It was the best apprenticeship in the world. It just teaches you everything about story. All the basic techniques are in soap opera. It's not any different. It's slightly bigger. It's slightly more heightened. But in a way, that's a really good way to learn. You what, know. what were the sort of key storylines during your period on EastEnders? It was a long time ago. It was, it was, it was 1990s when I was storylining. It was... Um, the Mitchell brothers' big love triangle, Sharon Gate, uh, <laughs> as, as it was known, and uh, the death of Arthur Fowler, 
oh. trumped up charges oh, and right. uh, uh, a few other things like that. It, it feels like a lot. Introduction of Tiffany, um, who was a, became a big star at the time. Uh, I think it's, it seems like a very long time ago. Now, the death of Arthur Fowler. I, I mean, this won't mean anything to our American listeners. <laughs> yeah, uh, but this is this is like who shot Jr. Basically, isn't it? <laughs> he was, <laughs> you know, he was a, he was a beloved character. Who makes the decision? Does the actor say to you, you know what, I'm getting a bit fed up with this, I need to move on? Or do you sit there like some evil emperor going, right, I'm going to kill you off, son? Uh, in that case, it was the actor. The actor decided they'd been in it since the beginning. They they were getting on a bit and thought now's the time to go, which is very sad because we all loved him and he was yeah. a great character. But, you know, departures give you good stories. Yeah. You know, and sometimes... You know, you just decide to kill people. Uh, sometimes <laughs> that's because you, they've really upset you. Uh, and sometimes it's because they're not working and sometimes you really don't want to, but it's a really good story. Right. You know, and what it taught me there was actually nobody is indispensable. You've, if you've just got to be really good about how you replace them. But if you replace them correctly, then the show always feels fresh. Yeah. And it was a really good lesson. You know, like, you know, you don't stick with what you know that works, you keep reinventing for the future. Right. So yeah, it, was, yeah. it, was a, it was a good place to learn. Now, if you pick up my paperback copy of your book and you dropped it from about three foot, it would open on a page <laughs> that I turn to very often, which has a thing called the Roadmap of Change. Ah. Now, many of our listeners will be familiar with The Hero's Journey, you know, it's kind of storytelling 101, really. But it was the roadmap of change that that was, is the thing I return to again and again and again. And when we started outlining our novel, Mr. Devar and I, it's the first thing we put in Scrivener was I, I put all the beats for, for the oh, roadmap wow. of change. How did that come about, that wonderful invention? Emerged slowly. What was obvious from the beginning of doing this was that stories seemed to have a common pattern. But that common pattern was defined as three acts. And you know, that's useful to a certain extent, but it seemed to be there was something else going on. You know, writers normally, you know, the, the tricky thing for most writers is that is act two, it's the middle thing. What happens yeah. in act two is where people get lost all the time. And the more I started to look at it, I thought there's something, I hadn't quite worked out the significance of the midpoint when I was doing that, but I was just plugging away thinking, I know there's something here. And then in Christopher Vogler's book, The Writer's Journey, Obviously, he talks about Joseph Campbell, and you know, we used to call it slightly really Campbell for dummies was the writer's <laughs> journey. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's even helpful. And he started off drawing the roadmap of change, but he only did the first little bit of it. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it, I thought, That's, it's, there's more there. Right. Why have you stopped there? So I, I do credit it in the book, and I, I make it clear that it came from an original observation of him. But what he didn't get or McKee didn't get or Sid Field didn't really get was the essentially symmetrical nature of structure. And once I'd worked out that, that actually the middle was so profoundly important, then the roadmap, you know, the journey to the centre of the forest where you find the truth and then taking that truth back home, that was the eureka moment. And so a lot of people helped, but the writer's journey was a really useful clue and then you just sort of piece it together from there and then you test it with everything you can find. Just say, because what you're when you're doing all this stuff, you're really prone to confirmation bias all the time. <laughs> you know, you know, go, yes, of course that's right, because it fits this, you know, and you have to be really ruthless. And my test with all of this was, does Shakespeare do it? 
Right. And uh, the great thing about Shakespeare is he writes very archetypally and you know for certain never read Sid Field. (laughs) (laughs) Now you break... You break a story into five acts now, uh, instead of the, what many consider to be the usual three. So, are you okay if I go go through this sort of? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because yeah. uh, it's it's in the book, and it, it, like I say, I return to it again and again. So we have uh, we have Act One, which is broken into three beats. There's no knowledge, growing knowledge, awakening. Act Two, which is doubt, overcoming reluctance, then acceptance. Then we have Act Three experimenting with knowledge, and then you've got in big capital letters, <laughs> midpoint key knowledge, and then experimenting post-knowledge. Act four, doubt, again, you're talking about it's this symmetry, growing reluctance, regression, then act five, reawakening, reacceptance, total mastery. And you have a little graphic in the book of that as well. When would you advise writers to apply that? Would you advise them to do as we've done, to sort of use it as a, as a sketch for an outline? Or, or is it something that maybe if you just put your story down on paper and then look at this and say, does my story fit this? What, what, what do you find works best? <laughs> it's a very good question. Every writer's different. So there's a couple of things. What's interesting about this is, 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 is I'm not saying people should write in five acts. Yeah. What was interesting for me was... Paul Greengrass, actually, if we give the poor name dropping, but he was the person who said it, and, it, and, I, and I, I couldn't answer. He said, "Why did Shakespeare write in five acts?" And I didn't know. And I, you explore it, and then you discover it reveals a pattern, and then you think that pattern is best articulated using five acts. But Shakespeare wrote in five acts because of the theatrical needs of his consumers. So you don't have to write in five acts. So five acts just became a tool on the journey to discovering the essential shape. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is most great writers would say they write with their heart first. They pour their heart onto the page. They don't structure beforehand. Then they go back and then they start to use the tools of their craft and chisel away. You know, Jimmy McGovern, the great British writer, used to say, you know, I write my first draft with my uh, heart. I write my second draft with my head, you know, and you chisel away at the marble and the story then reveals itself, you know, writing is rewriting, et cetera, et cetera. But I know a lot of writers who are very methodical and they use five-act structure. So you're writing an hour's drama on a television, say, okay, four commercial breaks. And at the end of turning point at the end of Act One, turning point at the end of Act Two, et cetera, et cetera. And they they work out those big tur- they've got a vague idea of the story in their head, then they work out the turning point and then they write to fit that. And I think it's just the personality type that mm-hmm. assumes itself. What's really interesting about this is people like Jimmy issue structure and people like Russell T. Davis, who did Doctor Who, et cetera, they, they don't like talking about structure. They don't really believe in it. They just write it. Mm-hmm. And if you read their work, they write perfect structure. And in a sense, that's the greatest proof of all is it comes from within. You know, it's the way we organise the world. And that's all you read to know, really. And the rest is, you know, how geeky do you want to be? And how much of a help is being a geek? Is being a geek? <laughs> and you say this is how we make sense of the world. Does this tap into the why we tell stories? What do you think of the purpose of stories? And, and have we always told them in the same way? This was the really big question. Where does it come from? And if you, if you look at the roadmap of change, you go from no knowledge halfway through to key knowledge and then back to mastery of that knowledge. 
And that's really the clue to it, because where it comes from in the end is, cut a long story short, structure is the dramatization of the process of knowledge assimilation. It's the dramatization of the process in which we learn. So I exist, I talk to you, I change. Sorry about that. <laughs> or, all the time or to vice versa. You talk to me, you change. I mean, you can't not have that interaction with every single thing in the world. Child touches fire, ouch, learns not to touch fire again. That's structure. So really, it's that that's all it is. It's the process of knowledge assimilation. That's where structure comes from. Uh, and it's really as simple as that, really. That's fascinating because it in some ways I've had some very deep, often quite spiritual discussions um, about the hero's journey as a structure. And a lot of people reflect that then on our own lives and say, you know, in some ways we are kind of in the hero's journey ourselves uh, throughout our own life. And yeah. when you talk about this idea of learning, that that completely connected for me because those it really makes sense in some ways that each day we are living out our own story and yeah. in essence kind of writing well, a chapter in our own book. The way to look at it is the hero's journey is just a metaphor for knowledge assimilation. You know, it's a very hippie-esque, grateful deadish way of <laughs> of of expressing, you know, we we learn and we change. Uh, and the hero's journey is a really good articulation of that you know but it's a it's a metaphor like all these story paradigms like john truby's 22 steps of story structure they're just metaphors for this shape you know and all, every person who writes a screenwriting book is really just writing they're trying to articulate the same shape we all are you just find the best metaphor to do it i chose woods because obviously it's the fairy tale structure it's the same thing. Can I can I just say, John, as well? I, I had a chuckle to myself earlier because I thought into the woods, and you could have ended the title of the book and down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> but as we start to explore this idea of storytelling, it, on one level, it can be really stripped down and simplified as, as you're explaining it, and on the other, we can get so lost, especially when we're seventy thousand words into a book, yeah, uh, with a deadline, which is great. But <laughs> it's this idea that there is. There is a bit of a rabbit warren underneath the woods, isn't there, in some ways? And if you if yeah. you go too far down there, that can almost be detrimental and you can't find your way back out sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's finding structure is is hard. Certainly the first few times you do it, I think like riding a bike, it becomes instinctive over time. You have to learn to listen to yourself and listen to your heart and let it tell you, no, I need to go over here. You know, and actually what was really interesting, again, when I started teaching uh, about 15 years ago, I taught my first generation of writers. I didn't even talk about the, the midpoint at all because I didn't understand it at that point. You know, so I was talking really, teaching really basic stuff. Of all the people I've taught, they were far the most successful group I've ever <laughs> taught because, you know, they find it. You know, it's great to have, but you can put too much emphasis on yeah, if, it, if this stuff becomes a crutch to prop you up, then it stops that extraordinary thing that happens when you look at the world and think, I want to write the world down. Well, this, this brings me on to something that, I mean, you talk about fractals and story shape and, and these kind of patterns repeating themselves. And it, it does make me think there is a danger, and I've been guilty of this in the past, which is where you try and shoehorn characters into a story shape and yeah. then you end up making them do things because... Well, 
they're supposed to have a revelation in the middle. They're supposed <laughs> to cross the threshold at this yeah. point. I mean, this must be something you see again and again. I mean, is how do you avoid something like that? I think you've got to be prepared to throw all this stuff away. Right. In the end, the, the great writers are the writers who whose imagination triumphs, the imagination leads the way. It's then propped up with a skeleton. But what's interesting is often when you're writing, what you think is the midpoint isn't the midpoint. And what you think is the third act break actually isn't the third act break. But if you try and force it to be, then you get in trouble. What you should do is just go, no, let me, I'll just write it. I mean, I made a film a few years ago, which has now been turned into a series on BBC. And I was convinced the midpoint was the, this thing. And it was only a year later when I watched it again. So I was like, oh, my God, no, it's not that at all. It's that. But it didn't really matter because the audience aren't going there. Well, there's the midpoint. If they are, then you're in trouble. You know, so. It's nice to know you're, you're as prone to this as the rest of us. So, uh, so oh, yeah. when, when developing a character, I mean, we've, the thing we've, we've been hearing again and again and again is, is character really needs to come first. Mm. You know, what's the best way to start building a character you, you talk about things like ego versus id is that always a, a good place to start well I, I don't think there's one way to start i think i mean there's there's loads of tricks you can use i mean the one which i learned on eastenders but right at the very beginning was can you draw them as a cartoon right and that was brilliant because immediately you know well what are you going to exaggerate you know, and then you suddenly realise, well, that's this is Dickens. This is what Dickens does. He takes one aspect and he exaggerates it. And you get real clarity straight away. You know, and so if you look at all the great EastEnders characters, I'm sorry if you're an American, so I mean nothing to you whatsoever. <laughs> they're really distinctive types. Yeah. You know, they're exaggerations of one thing. Now, if they're just that, they'll be two dimensional. But once you're there, you can then flesh them out. And so that was a really useful lesson. The ego and the id thing is is really. It's something that a writer said to me years ago. They said, um, you know, all great characters are, are contradictions. They're in conflict with themselves the whole time. And he talks about Basil Fawlty, you know, what, seeing himself as this, um, you know, lord of the manor, kind of like, you know, like a man of high class and breeding. And, you know, which is obviously absurd because he was nothing but he was a bed and breakfast owner in a hotel in Torquay. And the conflict between that, same with Captain Mannering in Dad's Army, you know, I am the great officer, but of course he's utterly inept and everybody laughs at him, is that conflict is what fuels a character between who a character thinks they are and who they really are. Is at the root of all storytelling. You know, I mean, you know, the Godfather's a really great illustration of this. He thinks he's a war hero, but he's much, much darker than that. And he goes on a journey in which he learns that actually he's not a war hero at all. He's something much darker than that. And of course, the significant point where he shoots the policeman and the gangster is the midpoint of the film. That's the lesson. Mm. You know, this is who I am. And you see that conflict in his eyes. Yeah. yeah. It's bang. Yeah. You know? It's funny. I was, um, I was listening to, I think I was Diane Keaton being interviewed the other night. And oh, she yeah. said uh, when they started shooting The Godfather, the producers wanted to fire Al Pacino because they, the stuff they shot first was the wedding right. and those early scenes where he's kind of sitting there and everyone else is doing all the action. And they were, the producer, we've got to fire this kid. He's, he's not doing anything. <laughs> so Coppola shifted the shooting schedule around to have that scene with uh, the, the cop uh, and where he comes out the toilet and shoots him. And then they were like, oh, okay, yeah, we get it. 
We get it. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's, amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. I love that film. So I beautiful love that directed. Film. Yeah. yeah. So, John, one of the things that we're we're obviously focusing on, which we've drawn an analogy with 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 your work, is looking at this idea of a bestseller. I mean, it, you know, a lot of people look at it and think, oh, it's just a, a trite kind of idea. But in some ways, you've worked on bestsellers in TV. And I'm curious to know what analogies have you drawn when you're reading a really good book. What analogies do you draw about the structure of, say, an episode of EastEnders and a good chapter in a book? The thing that you always take with you uh, is you've just got to make sure that every sentence makes you want to read the next sentence. Every word wants to make you read the next word. You know, Naji, Lee Child does this brilliantly. The Jack Reacher novels are really good illustrations of big populist storytelling. And he said it, you know, he said, like, you ask a question and then you don't answer it. You know, and that's all you're doing. And But Ian Foster said exactly the same thing. The only important thing in a story is what happens next. And conversely, the only thing that will ruin a story is if you don't care what happens next. So it's all about, you know, the, all the techniques you use to, to create curiosity and intrigue and defer gratification. Uh, and the more you do that, the more populist the novel or the story seems to be. So that's partly, you know, that's just, you know, good standard technique. And that applies to the literary novel as much as the pot boiler. But the other, you know, the other thing you look for in a story is do enough people want to be that character? Where do you place your heart uh, is the key thing I ask in every script I ever develop. It's like, you know, who do I love? Who's my hero? Right? And do I want to be them? And if you don't, then no one else is going to want to be them either. So, you know, but do you want to be Al Pacino in The Godfather? Oh, God, yeah, of course you do. You know, because he, there's something extraordinarily attractive that taps into your dark side. You know, even if it's got a dark ending, you don't care. I remember seeing that film in the cinema and every male walking out, strutting out of the cinema, <laughs> thinking, can I grease my hair back? Like, you know, it's that, it's James Bond. Every kid, every boy wants to be James Bond, you know, like as you know, as, as young girls a few years ago always wanted to be Hannah Montana. You know, their journey taps into your deepest desires. And that seems to me really important. You know, the ubiquity of the Cinderella story, the ubiquity of the Ugly Duckling story is entirely built on, you know, we all think deep down we're pretty useless and everyone's laughing at us and we're a bit crap, you know. But if only I could, if only I could prove, you'd see. You know, that story is so seductive, so seductive. So you get that a lot. And I think, you know, like, you, know you, you only want to go on a walk if, you, if you're comfortable with the person taking you for a walk and the journey in sight is somewhere that feels appealing. Yeah, and that, you know, that doesn't have to be a nice story you know it can be the darkest tales of revenge because of course we all feel those things too you know they're all laughing at me i'm going to kill them <laughs> you know I mean, this may just be me obviously no no i'm a screenwriter i know how that feels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it, it, it's it's that so yeah there are certain types of story that you know you know you shouldn't be formulaic about it but you know jack reacher is a wandering knight errant who brings justice uh, to forlorn communities, just like David Carradine did in Kung Fu yeah. 40 years ago. Uh, and when I was a kid, David Carradine in Kung Fu was the coolest thing on the planet. It's, it's interesting on Michael Corleone thing as well, because you often get notes you know, from producers say, oh, I want these characters to be more likable. Oh, yeah. 
and that's that's often a bum steer, isn't it? They yeah. don't need to be likable. They they need to be intriguing. Really. Yeah, I, I, it used to be like that all the time in telly, but that was because telly was you know depended on mass audience, and so you try not to offend anybody. Mm. But since cable and streaming and video on demand has taken off, you know, and since The Sopranos in particular. That's changed a lot. There's a much greater understanding that you don't have to be nice. Nice is really boring, you know. <laughs> I mean, Russell T. Davis's advice is just just don't think about it at all. Just write. And I think in a sense he's right. You know, if you love them, the audience will love them. And that's all you have to worry about. Yeah. Mm, that kind of epitomizes uh, Brian Cranston's character, Walter White in Breaking yeah. Bad. We, we had Brian on the show earlier. And yeah. it was that experience of falling in love with this character and then the character turning bad and and then being in this awful situation of thinking i'm still kind of shouting for him but i, I can't believe he just did that yeah. and it's it's that whole experience i love i love that analogy that you just gave i think it's so important for us to as writers almost to at some point stop and if we're falling out of love with a character what does that mean does that mean that we are we're actually no longer interested in the character or we're losing touch with the character or it's just that it's changing but we're still actually in love with them underneath it's it's brilliant i mean we're writing a female um protagonist which is a challenge because yeah. we're having to put ourselves into the mind of a woman and it explains why mark totters around the office now in high heels and a dress <laughs> but <laughs> yes as he is now well quite exactly just comfortable <laughs> <laughs> so how do you when you're writing i mean you've obviously written characters of the opposite sex how do you even start to approach that yourself when you have to try to get into their shoes as it were oh, it's such a big question i mean when i was been doing it i i just think of people i know and try and imagine what it's like to be them i mean that's you know it's the process of empathy isn't it you know you try and imagine what it's like to be someone else if you're good at that then it works I don't know what else you could say. It's really weird now because there's this whole thing of cultural appropriation where people say, well, you can't tell their story. Mm. You can't tell their story. You can't dress like that. You know, I find it all slightly sad, really, because as humans, what makes a society is our ability to, to imagine what it's like to be someone else. That's what, you know, that's what empathy is. And if you're saying, oh, no, we can't empathize with them, we can't go into that culture or that culture. You know, if you're good, why can't you? Even if you're bad, if you're bad, you'll do it and no one will read it. But if you're good, then... So I think don't be daunted by that. There are plenty of wonderful books written by men about women as there are amazing books written by women about men. It's just a question of observing and being attuned. Absolutely. Exposition is a minefield for writers. We've got a very light touch of science fiction in our book. If you think sort of Back to the Future, the first Back to the Future kind of light, it's not much technobabble, but there are things there, rules essentially that need to be outlined and made clear. What are the, the best ways of conveying exposition uh, in, in your story? as efficiently as possible about boring and info dumping on the on the reader or the viewer. Okay, well there's, 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 in drama there's a few there's a few sort of quick fixes, you know. The, the easiest one is have an ingenue. Have someone in there who's like the reader who doesn't know yeah. and then someone's got a reason to tell them all that information. You know, so every brand new drama series always starts with the rookie. You know, the rookie's there to be told this stuff we need to know so that's one way the second way is really through conflict 
you know, if you need to get information across, have an argument, you know, uh, because because then exposition is weaponized. Exposition. The problem with exposition in real life is people, there's no real desire to say it. It's inherently dramatic. But if you have an argument, then the, the exposition gets disguised. It's a desire. It has a desire attached. Yeah, you know, all writing is about desire. The protagonist always wants something. So if you give your exposition desire, you know, for God's sake, give up smoking, then I know you smoke. Yeah. You know, it's that, isn't it? And I think, you know, the best people to do that, and it's also because I, I write video games occasionally as well, and you see this, they've learned hugely how to hide exposition, is, is you just reveal exposition through inference. As you go through the story, you work it out from what the characters are doing. But, yeah, that's the more skilled yeah. version. I mean, I do, in, in the book, I do a little history of exposition. You know, it goes all the way back to the, you know, the prologue in ancient Greece, who says, here is our scene, and they are at war with these people. And then you get to the 19th century, and the, you know, the whole table-dusting things where you get two right. maids come on and say, you'll never guess what so-and-so has been up to. <laughs> you know? And, you know, film writing now is, you know, at its best. You know, it's like, you know, exposition is all invisible. Mm. It's just what you want. You know, you don't want to know you're being given it information. Well, they put it all in the trailer these days. Well, which is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, I've got a quick question. Well, I'll say a quick question of the week. I think this could open uh, uh, a real can of worms here. But um, And I, I put word out earlier today, has anyone got a question of the week for John? And then my daughter tweeted me. She didn't, she didn't call me or speak to me. She tweeted me. That's, that's the new generation, people. <laughs> Sign of the times. Uh, and she says, uh, she says, I've got two. Can your story have too many characters? And how many characters should a story focus on? I mean, we have, we have films that are ensemble pieces, and then you have very much those kind of hero's journey where it's about one person. But is, is there such a thing as too many characters? Yes, of course, there must be. I mean, it, it depends on what you're trying to achieve because... You know, there's been so many great gang shows on television with, say, ER or The West Wing would have six protagonists. That works really well. You know, it depends how you do it. You decide is your show a multi-protagonist show? Is it a dual protagonist show like Starsky and Hutch? Or is it a single protagonist show? And you work from there. I think, you know, if you get beyond six, it gets quite hard for the audience to focus on on who they're being involved with and why should they care but a great writer can probably find a way to do more than six or ten. But it also depends on the length of the story, the duration of the story. But with six, you know, what you find is, you know, you see even then structural patterns. It's all those six are different facets of one personality. So you have the brainy one, you have the impetuous one, you have the father figure, you have the rookie and you put them all together and you've got one protagonist. This rings very true. Have you come across this thing called the Band of Five? I'll find a link and I'll put it on our Facebook and on our, our Twitter. And I think it refers to a lot of Joss Whedon shows where he'll have five people. And it will be like you'll have the lead singer, you'll have the guitarist, you'll have the drummer, and they all have different facets. Yeah. They all have a different role in the story and you can yeah. switch between. And if you look at Firefly, if you look at Buffy, yeah. they you can tick them uh, off essentially yeah. which is which is interesting yeah. I knew I knew one guy who used to you know always build his uh, his four main characters around the personalities of the Beatles <laughs> oh, oh, brilliant it wasn't Joe, Joe Hill, Hill was it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Car Joe when we interviewed Jerry says at some point in his book he brings in the Beatles and in some every interview the Beatles always eventually oh, really? come into funny. discussion so <laughs> 
It's brilliant. Uh, of course, if you're doing a, a soap opera, you've got a huge cast of characters there. But of course, each episode can only concentrate on on so many characters. So is it a question of giving the writers uh, a character or a family to focus on for that week? Is that how it works? Uh, the, the, the episodes are storylines. Normally, the episodes are storylines. So you're, you're, you, the writer will know what's expected of them. You know, they'll have like, you know, it can be a paragraph, it can be a page, it can be two pages, and it'll have, depending on the show, it'll have, you know, the EastEnders, when I ran it, was five storylines in each episode. So you'd have uh, two, we had two A stories, which is a bit silly, really. So we had two big stories, then we had a B story, a C story, and a tiny little D story. And that was the same every week. And we gave, you know, this is the episode where Grant discovers that Sharon has been having sex with Phil. Or whatever, um, and you give them that, and you say, "Well, here's where it starts. Here's where it ends. Go off and write it." And their job is to join the dots. Soap writing is is you know it's a real skill is joining the dots. Outside of that, you used to go to the writers and say, "We need a new family. We need to develop a new. Can you create a new family for us?" And, and the best writers would then go off and and do that, and that would give you something. And do you have any tips on alternating? And pacing the switches between those oh. those those storylines because we I, certainly in our book we've got definitely a big well actually it's kind of a double A isn't it I mean we had an A and mm. a B but actually the B is becoming its own A isn't it and we've got various is, sort of yeah. subplots running beneath so I'm certainly finding that you reach a point where you think I need to get out here I need and that thing of mm. asking a question answering and let's go to the other story yeah. is, that, is that a good jumping off point. Yeah, I mean, I always remember um, it was Ian Banks, I think, in, um, I, years ago, I read The Crow Road and I thought, oh, yeah. God, this is brilliant because every single chapter I desperate to carry on and he always went somewhere else. And I was really annoyed for about 30 seconds. Thought, <laughs> yeah, this is really interesting. Wow, it's like a squirrel. You know, uh, and, 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 you know, that's, that's the trick, isn't it? Is, is, you, you know, it's really useful in deferring gratification. It's just, I'll go over there. I'll go over there. You know, so you hold back the answer. You know, you put someone in jeopardy, you cut away. You can formulate rules, but I think mostly people do it instinctively. You know, at some point, go, okay, that's enough there. You know, let's let's leave him alone. I've got, I need to go over here, and then it's trial and error. What's interesting, if you do it like that, is is in hindsight, you'll look back and you'll find a pattern. Because I think what you're doing when you're writing is, as I said, you're chiseling away at marble to find the story that's in there so you just do it and you find it you know if you look at the very first episode of er michael crichton's amazing script for er um there's six characters it's 90 minutes long and i stared at it for two years thinking how's he done this (laughs) and then finally oh i get it yeah and there is a really clear really simple shape at its heart how do you study scripts? Do you sort of just sit down and make notes and pick them apart? Is there a method you use for doing that? <laughs> well, when I started doing this, I really did go to the cinema with a pad of paper and a stopwatch. <laughs> you know, I could work it out. So I thought, I'm going to have to just time everything and, and, and explore it. I think it's like doctors and x-rays. You know, if I look at an x-ray, I can't, it's just there. Yeah. But a doctor will look at it and go, oh, yeah, there's a carcinoma of your lung. Yeah. And... The more you do it, the more you know what to look for and you start to be able to see stories very quickly. So it's very unusual for me now to see something and not be able to see its structure, you know, pretty quickly. But, you know, while you're watching it, you try really hard not to think about it because that means it's not any good. It's, it's a nice pleasure afterwards 
I, I do catch myself if I'm watching a movie or even a TV show now and something significant happens, I glance down at the clock. Oh, yeah, yeah, 10 minutes in, right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly that. I think, you know, it's like it should be fun to, to you know, and the structure bit comes afterwards, I, I think. You were saying this, weren't you, Mr. DeVoe? This, this whole experiment has completely ruined movies for you <laughs> oh completely i mean i'm i'm, I'm completely ruined now because i've i've come from the music world i'm a songwriter ah, okay. and an artist in there and I'm, i could never listen to a song again just enjoy a song because oh, i'm thinking yeah. oh it's a really interesting baseline and it's become the same now it's become the same with tv but oh, one of the things sorry. i'm also fascinated in john that you also mentioned earlier you kind of alluded to it is um what i call the dumb eight have you come across the dumb eight before no Tell no. Me. So it's the moment where you have that massive cliffhanger and then you have that doom, 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 right? Right, yeah. So Got it. one of the crucial things that I've been really paying attention to in the book that, that we're writing is that every last line in that chapter has to be a cliffhanger yeah. or has to grab people. Now, from having worked on all these series that you have, especially, I mean, again, we come back to EastEnders as the, the king of, of those shows – what have you learned about the importance of getting that right? With EastEnders, people would, you know, if they're into the show, they'll keep watching it. But but it is crucial, isn't it, that that cliffhanger, yeah. that last bit, is what brings people back or turns the page in the case of the book. Yeah, it's a subversion of expectation, either of the audience or the protagonist at the last second. And, and yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, it goes back to, I can sound really pretentious now, it's Greek drama, isn't it? I think the Greeks call it peripatia. Uh, and aneurysis, which is a reversal and discovery. So it's as old as that. It's a basic unit of dramatic structure. It's something that's confronted by its opposite that flips what you thought you knew on its head at the last minute. And it's a brilliant device because, you know, it's the crisis point of the scene, uh, which means you go, oh, no, don't leave them there. Don't, no, don't stop. <laughs> That's what you want, isn't it? It's an extraordinarily powerful thing. You know, I mean, people look in soaps, you know, people tend to look at it as a slightly cheap and meretricious device. And it can be if it's used badly. It's like the 1960s Batman, you know, like they'd be in, Batman was about to die and the next week you'd realise that the whole thing was ridiculous and obviously it was never <laughs> at all. So you've got to pay it off cleverly uh, yeah. in an intelligent way that's surprising yet somehow feels true. Uh, they're very hard to do, you know. They're, they're I was going to say, are they, is it is it a bit like I think of, um, you know, you know, you almost think of a team of people sitting around just working on getting that ending right. Was that the case when you would you'd work on? Well, these yeah, shows and when on... you're planning something like EastEnders, you know, you put a lot of work in, into that. But yeah, the, the really simple way of looking at it is 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 you reverse engineer. What do I want to end, and then okay, that's my ending. I'm going to write against that. Brilliant. And you just do it like that. So the master of that was actually Aaron Sorkin. It was that wonderful episode of The West Wing where someone's tried to assassinate the president's party uh, and you're in President Barlett's limousine and he's saying, I'm really worried. What about Zoe? I think Zoe's been shot. We've got to turn around. We've got to go and get her. And it's about three minutes of, of, of thinking, oh, what a great guy. He's really worried about his daughter and his staff. And then suddenly you realise he's been shot. You know, and it's an amazing moment. Bang into the credits, and you're just there. You know, and yeah, Aaron Sorkin does it all the time. You know, he's a master craftsman. So, do you, do you think of that in terms of emotion as well? Do you ever think this is how I want people to feel by the end of the episode or by the end of the show? I want them to feel bereft or angry or sad or 
Yeah, I think I, th- I think so. I, I I think I mean it's not often consciously articulated, but I think yeah. You know, I mean, Tom Stoppard is really brilliant. He talks brilliantly about this. Is um, you know, a writer's job is is to organise information and release it in the right order to solicit the emotional response you require. It's <laughs> easier said than done. <laughs> it is, because, it, you, know, you, like, you, know, you know, a comedy will be exactly the same story as a tragedy, but the information will be released in a different order. Uh, and that, that's all it is, really. It's working out when to release information for maximum desired effect. Because so much of writing is, I'm not going to tell them that yet. I'm not going to let them know he's her uncle. Mm. Because when I do reveal that at the end of the fourth act, it'll have... This effect, you know, it's always you know, it's always variations on suspense or surprise, isn't it? And I think it's um, certainly again when I started out, it's it's a rookie error in that you want to spill all that straight away. Yeah. You, you have this temptation yeah. to explain everything, yeah. and, and maybe don't have the confidence to to hold back that information. New writers want to explain everything, and and it, it's learning to withhold, withhold and intrigue, but also learning to lie to the audience. Hmm. You know, that's the real skill is, you know, the, the, the subtle way in which you lead an audience to infer a deep untruth. So then later on you can reveal it and they can go, oh, of course. You know, that's why Agatha Christie is brilliant. Mm. You know, uh, the example I give in the book, I think, is, uh, uh, I won't be able to remember this now. It's police there investigating a house fire. Uh, a mum and two children were badly injured. The woman had recently gone through a difficult divorce. So you immediately infer that it's the husband, right, yeah. and of course the trick, the twist is it's you know it's either the mum who set fire to the house, or if you're really sick, it's one of the kids. <laughs> All right. oh. And there you got instant story. Yeah. yeah. How how about John when you've you've got a in this idea sometimes that a character is you're keeping a secret with the reader. Because there's all this idea of kind of holding everything back. And one of the struggles Mark and I have had is we've kind of had this discussion quite a bit. I said, no, no, we want the reader to have the secret with us so they can say, no, you know, don't go into the house type situation where you know what's going to happen. How do you tend to balance that? Because obviously you want to to hold back things. You want to obviously have these surprises and twists. But how powerful is it when you kind of you and the the narrator and the reader are are like an inside club in some ways and the character doesn't know what's going on. It depends on what emotional effect you want to have. I mean, Hitchcock always said that that was far superior to surprise. He thought surprise was cheap, and well, even though he used it a lot. It was psycho, you know, it's quite surprising at times. Uh, but he always said, you know, let is the bomb. He talks, yeah, everyone knows this is the bomb under the table stuff. Is you know, like if you tell the audience there's a bomb under the table, but don't tell the characters, you know, you are glued as they talk inanely about last week's football match you're sitting there going oh my god there's a bomb under the table <laughs> you know so so if that's the effect you want then that's absolutely fine i think chekhov would not be chekhov if chekhov did that chekhov would talk about a football match and you'd infer subtly their relationship over the ages from that conversation that's the effect he chekhov wanted um so so everybody's different um, I think the more populist you are, the more surprise and suspense becomes really important, and not to be sniffed at. It's, you know, it's an amazing technique using the right hands. We'd like you to help us a minute, John, because we had we, we inferred about Joe Hill earlier, but actually, before we do that, we want to talk about your book, Into the Woods, and it's 
obviously available on Amazon and we think about half of our listenership have already gone out and bought it. But <laughs> for the other 50%. Don't get it confused please. with the James Corden musical. Yes, yeah. That <laughs> would be a kind of a surprise. So we've got a competition. You've kindly said that you would donate one of your books signed uh, to give away. So if you're interested in getting a personalized copy of John's book, pop along to thebestsellerexperiment.com. It'll be under the win tab in the navigation. And for anyone that entered the competition, we've had a number of competitions running. We had Joe Hill on the show. Absolutely interesting, fascinating guy. And he gave us a, a hard copy of his book, The Fireman. And it was a limited edition, Mark, wasn't it? Signed a red edition, apparently. There's not many of those red, in the world. Red they? edges on the paper, which makes red it edges. extra rare. And right. also signed by Joe. And also we have a Camp Wyndham t-shirt, uh, which you just can't get anywhere. So that's it's, it's no. one of the places featured in the book. So, uh, yeah, this is quite a nice little package for uh, a winner Absolutely. out there. And we had hundreds, hundreds of entries. And, John, we're going to, through the magic of the internet here in Vancouver, across to London. I'm going to press the magic button and a, a name is going to appear on your screen and we'd like you to, to read it out for us as the winner of that competition. Do you want me to do, do, the, to do, do the drum oh, we've roll? We've got to have the drum roll, absolutely. We've done absolutely. this two weeks on the trot now, so uh, people yeah, are going to expect this. So, okay. This is high quality. High, here okay. we go. I've got to get the drum kit in the room first. This is the suspense <laughs> bit, John, that you were talking about, right? <laughs> and the winner is... Alison Sherwood. Congratulations, Congratulations Alison. Well done. That package will be winging its way to you. And if you didn't win, get over to the website and enter John's competition that's on the, on the website this week and we'll run for a, for a short while. So, John, it's been... I will not ask a very cheeky question, actually. We've got... <laughs> we're coming to the end of our first draft, aren't we, Mark? And... It's still about 20,000 is... words to go, you know, so yeah. it's... <laughs> I'm, I'm... I'm being I'm being optimistic here. And what I'm going to do is once we've got to the end of that draft, I'm going to stand back and just go through it and pick out you know the major pot points almost like line by line. Sure. Very high level. And we've asked a few of incredible like Sarah Pinborough who's fantastic. She's going to kind of like look at this and just tell us where the massive holes are. Sure. <laughs> and I was wondering with your amazing knowledge and the kind of bird's eye view, would you mind if I sent it to you and you could just literally give us a bit of a red line treatment on that? Yeah, sure. I'd be delighted. As long as it's not, you know, the length of the Encyclopedia Britannica, then... No, yeah, no, no, absolutely obviously. not. We're going to we're gonna get this down to a couple of pages. <laughs> I'd be delighted. No, thank you for asking. That'd be great. And then we can also apply everything that we've been learning in this show. I mean, I think we're going to come back and back to this, Mark, aren't we, in terms of... I've got so many notes here. I don't even know where to start. Well, and also um, this is this is just really the tip of the iceberg. So, uh, I mean, if you're interested in going deeper, which is what this is all about at the moment, John, you run a number of courses. I and do. they're not just for writers either. I mean, there's there's courses for drama, but there's also courses for business people yeah. as well. Do, do you want to talk about those for a moment? Well, I, I just, you know, I, you know, I started off just looking at narrative in, in television and then you realise that you know, the rules of narrative have to be the same for everything or they can't be true at all you know the, the only difference between you know narrative in a book and narrative in a theater is the mode of consumption the story is fundamentally the same so i started looking at it in other areas partly because i was asked to and then partly because i just wow this is fascinating so i you know we do storytelling for business we you know i spend a lot of time working with advertising agencies honing their stories we do storytelling for the novel we do storytelling for video games you know the, the, you start to realize after a while there are so many different applications of narrative uh but you know biz, business is 
you know, one of the most interesting is, is, is you know, how a company tells its story. They can find these courses on johnyorkstory.com and some of them are, are web-based, so you yeah. don't have to even leave um, your home. Yeah, you, most of them are, you know, you do them in your own time at home, but we also provide a consultancy service and we'll come and talk and, you know, whatever people want, really. You're a sort of bespoke narrative consultancy. If you want to learn with John, he has a 16-week online course called Storytelling for Screen drama which starts on the 29th of may and john's company has been very kind enough to give us five vouchers each voucher is worth 400 pounds off his course it's exclusive to bestsellerexperiment.com listeners so if you'd like to get your hands on one of those vouchers pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com click on the win tab in the navigation enter your email and we'll send you details and the code to use to get that discount. And it's only the first five that redeem the voucher. So pop on over and use that voucher now. And John, have you got any any more plans in the pipeline for any more books on what we've been talking about? Oh, it's a horrible question. Yes, I've started the second book, which is about this in nonfiction, how narrative works outside of fiction. Oh, uh, I'll be the first reader of that book because I'm a, I'm a big fan of nonfiction as well, well. Well, if you can wait six years, I think... Uh, oh, so, like, I tell you what, I'll, uh, I'll be your beta reader. How about that? That's perfect. Send me your notes. It's a fair swap. Excellent. And where can we find you online, John? johnyorkstory.com if you want to get in touch with us drop us a line over at bestsellerexperiment.com we have our own little book which is coming together we transcribe all our interviews so we've got story advice from the likes of John York from Sarah Pimbra Joe Hill Jarba Crombie Joanne Harris Michael Connolly and we're up to about 90,000 words now so and that's free just pop over to the bestsellerexperiment.com sign up to our newsletter and we can provide it as an EPUB or as a PDF come over and say hi on Facebook we're at Bestseller Experiment Twitter is at Bestseller XP we've got lots of visual clues about our stories uh, over on Pinterest and we're on Instagram too. And don't forget for everyone who's found this interview fascinating, it's been one of the most educational for me. Get over to wherever you can find it, bookstores, Amazon and buy John's book now into the woods. It will change your life. And I've got to say, John, you know, when you look at Amazon and you look at the different comments that you've had, people dream of getting one of the papers like The Guardian or The Times to say something nice about the book. Proof is in the pudding for your book. When you look at that list of all of the writers and all of the journalists and what they say about your book, I honestly say this now. This book is and will be seen as a classic in years to come. And I think what you've actually given to the world is a legacy. I know you, you're a very humble guy, I can tell you that. <laughs> but what, what you've given to the world as a legacy will live for years and years to come. And I just want to thank you for that and your contribution to the arts, because I think it's, uh, it's an incredible piece of work that you've given. And your insight, the way that you see things is, for me, what connects completely all those years you've spent analyzing it's all paying off in, in huge ways for everyone so thank you so much for everything you've given uh, that's, that's extremely kind of you thank you 
This is normally when I pull a face and make some kind of <laughs> cynical comment, but I totally agree. I mean, this is, this is <laughs> yeah, I totally yeah. agree. This book is my Bible, basically. So, uh, yeah, yeah, fantastic. And thank stuff. you so much for coming on the show. I know how incredibly busy you are. So yeah, It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely brilliant. Then. Thank you so much, John. And best of British luck in everything that you do from this moment on. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing how your hero's journey develops as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. So thank you so much, John. And it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And it's a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two Marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality and subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe